you an assassin and a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks to collect the bill. I'm not through with my examination. Sit down. If I seem to be offensive, you may take it. I'm offended. You're offended. This is Speaking Out America. Join us online at speakingoutamerica.com. You paid the money. You paid four bucks. I'll keep it. It's my time now. I do a four fifty show. That's it, baby. So you may make a little bread off this tonight. Yeah, you just might. Yeah. Welcome back. Howdy. Hope you had a good weekend. Hope you had a good Father's Day. I know our demographics indicate that, you know, majority of men listen to talk radio and probably listen to this show right here, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. on crntalk.com and, of course, on your favorite podcast uh, where we rip it up and really get down to the nitty-gritty about what's happening in your life and how things that are going on over there affect you over here. And I always love coming on and sharing with you the news the regular media doesn't have the courage to report uh, because they know that they'll lose their place in line. You know, that's all it is, right? I mean, that's why they all follow the leader. You know, uh, it's just the way it is. And it's why it finally it finally dawned on me why there is so much misinformation in the media, because everybody is following the Pied Piper in order to get their position in line. Nothing's changed. In human, in human nature. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be affirmed. We all are insecure little, you know, animals. You know, I, uh, I enjoyed Father's Day. For me, every day is Father's Day because I have three wonderful children and a spectacular granddaughter. And all of my children are, are well-balanced, and you know, because they got the love. And, uh, and, and treatment from us, mom and dad. We did a lot to make sure that they grew up knowing that we cared about them and that we supported their endeavors and how they conducted themselves was important. Those were rules, uh, how they treated other people. You know, we taught them self-respect, but not self-adoration. You know, we taught them confidence, but not arrogance. And we taught them you know, that they always could come to us. No, they're not perfect. Ne- neither am I. I was not the best dad. And I'm, I, I don't claim to be, but I enjoyed, and I'm lucky, and I'm fortunate enough, and I, and I gave thanks to my father. You know, I have two fathers, right? You know, we, I have the father that raised me, who is an incredibly gifted and kind human being. And he grew up through not very good times. He was born in the year of the Depression, 32. A poverty-stricken family like many people in America. Living in South Los Angeles, what is known as Inglewood, before there was a Coliseum. And I think they built their own shack right there on Normandy and I want to say 100, maybe around Century Boulevard. It might have been closer, maybe Pico. Much closer to downtown. Anyway, that's, you know, he passed away years ago from a heart attack. And uh, and we had a great relationship up until that point, and I'm so grateful for that because having that relationship with him allowed me to learn about his life and what it's like. And if you don't get that from your parents, if you don't learn about them and their trials and tribulations, it's a shame because it's that it, there's wisdom there. Uh, parents provide a lot of wisdom. I think a lot of times in today's society. 
older people are disregarded. They they sit alone in their home or wherever they're at. You know, we're all living now in different parts of the country. So no one's there to take care of mom or dad. And they just put them away. Uh, and uh, if, if they have any means, then they they live okay. If they don't have any means, they're at the mercy of the state. So I think it would be greater if more kids, when I was younger, we would go around and I don't remember if it was through a church we went to or maybe it was part of a school project, but we made it a point to go visit the elderly folks at the old folks home in our neighborhoods. And there would be a period like during Christmas where you go and read Christmas carols to them. And it would bring great joy. And I remember a couple of times in my early broadcasting career, I would volunteer for certain things like reading for the blind where you go and and you be an audio engineer for people who read books that are then translated for blind people so that people that are blind can hear a book. And and this was predating, of course, everything that we have now with MP3s and audio and everything else. This was long before that. This is where people actually had to open up a book, record it on a tape, and that tape had to get processed. Anyway, long story short, it gave me an opportunity, again, to to mingle with older people and get to know them and what life was like for them growing up, you know, during the tumultuous 20th century. It was an incredible time when you think about all of the changes that occurred from the from the time electricity was introduced to society in the late 1890s. For that first 100 years, everything was exponential. Uh, and there's so many great stories that will be lost when those people who lived in that period eventually fade away. They, they fade away. And that's what I thought about on Father's Day. I thought about my father uh, in heaven who, who s- most certainly has our best in- intentions, but also just giving thanks more than anything. And then, of course, my dad, dad. And so I'm lucky in that in respect. And I know a lot of people wish that they had a better relationship with their parents. They wish that they had taken the time to spend time. Because what, once that time is gone, it's gone. And that's what Father's Day means. So it was great. To, my one son is out of town on on a job assignment. My other son is settled with his significant other. And they're living great. And they're spending time with each other. And and then my daughter and her granddaughter, or her daughter, got to spend time with me. And it was just wonderful. And going out and seeing all of the people eating. We had horrendous storms over the weekend, but that didn't keep people from going out to restaurants and eating and spending time. And it made me feel good to see so many restaurants filled with people taking their dads. You know, because we're pretty special. And we, we don't get all the credit that we deserve, nor do we care. Uh, that's the great thing about a lot of dads is we don't care about the accolades and what it means and what we've done. We just are grateful that we have children that we love and that love us. And that I think it's important. It's so important. If that's, if that has any meaning to you, then great. Uh, it just uh, something I wanted to share with you. It was a special day. You know, one of the things that we got to do, which was kind of funny, I'd never seen the show before, but are you familiar with the show? Uh, Naked and Afraid. I think it's on the TLC channel, Naked and Afraid. 
anyway, it, it's they have varying degrees of plot lines, but one plot line is where two people spend 21 days in a remote area of the country, whether it's the Everglades or the swamps, you know, of, of uh, Mississippi or wherever it is, some remote island out in the middle of the Caribbean. And they virtually only have two tools that they can choose, and they are naked. And it's very clever how they cover all that up. So you get used to seeing these naked people, but they don't show their their private parts at all. They're blurred out. And after a while, you don't even you don't even notice. But it does help you kind of imagine what it what it must have been like in the early times of mankind. And when we first evolved and we were intelligent and we hadn't yet formed societies and all of that, but it just kind of takes you to this it hits you over the head like, you know, that's really the way that we lived <laughs> for hundreds of thousands of years perhaps. In the jungle with just loins on like Tarzan. And 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 these people that are in the, you know in the today's naked and afraid, they don't, you know they're trying to survive, and it's hard. I it's like wow you could die tomorrow just from one little thing one little snake bite, getting an alligator eat you while you're sleeping or a bear. It was tough, and they have to make it for twenty one days, and then if they make it, then they got to make it out, and then they got to meet with the rendezvous people now. We know, obviously, there's probably things behind the scenes. I don't think that they get to take a shower, and I don't think that they're fed a meal. I think that they're, they're, they have to sign some kind of a waiver that says not only do you have to be naked for the next 21 days, but anything that happens to you, you're on your own. And that's, that's an interesting plot line. And uh, so, anyway, I, I spent, I think my wife and I and a da- granddaughter and daughter binged watch episode after episode and i found it very interesting because you know what i learned number one we're lucky to be here that's number one we're lucky to be here because judging from the nincompoops i saw on that tv show i'm surprised that we made it the characteristics of human beings have not changed you have different uh archetypes You've got the, the, the plotter, the one who likes to, you know, do whatever he, he has to to win. And then you got the caretaker, then you got the victim, and then you got the cooperator, the Superman. And in every situation, I don't care if it's the work, you know, the office or the farm or any, they're, they're always the same characters. Like the, the scene never changes. It's just the characters change. And, uh, and the same challenges that we have with trust and loyalty and uh, faithfulness and covering someone's back and watching out for somebody or being an opportunist and taking advantage of the situation, you know, all of those archetypes come out in this. And it's, it's an experience that teaches you a lot about humankind and, and the way we are and the way we have not changed. So just a little philosophy for you as we start off the show there is a lot to cover more of the continuing sagas but we'll go light since it's it's monday and it's juneteenth day and some of you have the day off so we don't want to get too heavy we got all week for that we'll be right back
By the way, we do have a comment line. So if you feel compelled to comment on a topic that you hear me discuss on this program, the number is 941-800-2937. Again, it's 941-800-2937. And feel free to call that if you want to comment or leave a comment. And we're working on getting a live call in line, but we're, we're on on so many different places. I don't want to miss the opportunity to hear what you have to say. So, so over the weekend, interesting. Here's an interesting soundbite from John Fetterman, uh, astoundingly, who is still a senator uh, of the United States Senate, even after having a stroke. And uh, the it was clear that the Democratic Party wanted him to stay in, despite the fact that he barely has the mental capacity to, to c- complete a sentence but it didn't matter because you can always count on him for a vote. See, that's that's where we're at with our politics today. Here's John Fetterman standing next to our president wearing a hoodie. Looked pretty new, like he just maybe bought it on the way over. So at least it was new. I'm not sure if it was etiquette standing next to the president. You should be wearing more than a hoodie, especially if you're a senator. But who the hell am I? Anyway, here's John Fetterman waxing philosophy on, on how happy he is to be standing next to the president. And now I'm standing next to the president again, next to a, a collapsed bridge here. And he is here <laughs> to commit to work with the governor and the, the, the delegation to make sure that we get this fixed quick, fast as well, too. This is a president that is committed to infrastructure. Yeah, and then on top of that, at the, the jewel uh, kind of a uh, uh, law of the inflation. You know, you can almost make the argument that he sounds like he is a product of the public school system. I mean, a lot of the people that come out, they can't write, they can't read, and they actually kind of sound like like this guy. And now I'm standing next to the president again, next to a a collapsed bridge here. Uh, I'm wondering if he meant that figuratively or literally. Uh, I think maybe figuratively. What else? Oh, okay, we have uh, Kareem. Jean-Pierre, or as I like to call her, Jean-Luc Picard, because that's the only way I can remember it. Uh, She's very proud of herself, and it's appropriate because, after all, it is Pride Month. And this woman, I mean, she is really proud of who she is. And I certainly walk in history every day, but a year in this role, there's been a couple of things that that has made me incredibly proud. Many things, many things that made me incredibly proud to be at that podium uh, during this historic moment. Again, this is a historic administration. I'm a historic figure and I certainly walk in history every day, but this is also a historic making administration because of this president. And because of me. I, I am his, I am history. Hear me roar. Uh, you know, that's one thing that I did read quite a bit about over the weekend that sort of got under my skin. And I do read. I don't take a day off from reading. There's there's too much that be, could be going on. But there's uh, somebody made the point. Today is Juneteenth. Juneteenth. And they made the point that uh, emancipation had already happened for a couple of years, but it took so long for the news to spread that they just made new Juneteenth a holiday celebrating the emancipation, which is two years after the proclamation was made by Lincoln. So Lincoln was already dead by the time they, you know, had that. And then of course our Biden decided two years ago, let's go ahead and have a day. And what it, what it, I was shocked to find out that they made it a federal holiday. Did you know that 18% of all federal employees are African-American. 
that that's the equivalent of one out of five African-Americans adults who are working have a job with the federal government. The same government that freed them, obviously, and then their ancestors now work for this government. So it, to me, that, that grounds alone would completely discount reparations. I mean, reparations would, would make sense if, if African-Americans or descendants of African-Americans who were enslaved were not able to find work. Now, it is also interesting that many of the states, see, I always assumed that maybe because history was taught to me this way, but I always assumed that once the slavery, once it was ended, then all of those people that had jobs were no longer employed or they no, no longer had a job. So they had to renegotiate the terms or they could leave and go find a job somewhere else. In Texas, what they did was they said, we don't want everybody to be displaced during this process. So you're free, but you're free to negotiate. And we, and they actually made an attempt to try to encourage the slave owners to negotiate fair deals so that there wouldn't be this homeless problem. There wouldn't be this, you know, if people wanted to leave, they wanted to go to the bigger cities and find jobs, which is what many people did in the South which is why you have such an influx of African-Americans in places like Chicago and Detroit, because those are where the jobs were emerging. The cities were where the jobs were. And in the Northern cities, many of them were already, there was no slavery in places like Illinois and New York. So naturally that's where people wanted to go. And that's why today we have such overwhelming majorities of impoverished African-Americans in these large cities because large cities can only, you know, they, they're more for people who have, you know, degrees and they are engineers. That's where you get that upper middle class is people who have the education or they have the skill sets to, to create businesses for themselves. And in the early African-American 1865 to probably, you know, 1900, there were not a lot of educated African-Americans. And that was, the biggest in inhibiting factor to their early success because suddenly everybody needed a job. Think about that for a minute. If you had 13 million African-Americans and all of a sudden, boom, okay, you're no longer enslaved. That's 13 million African-Americans and now need a job. And what skill sets did they have? They only had the skill sets that they were taught. And so it was a rough period. And um, anyway, now the African-American population comprises about 13% of the total United's population. They're the second largest group in America besides Caucasians. Yet they make up almost 20% of the federal workforce. So I think that that in itself is a form of retribution. Don't you? And on top of that, now we're three generations in where all African-American children in America are entitled to a free education. Uh, they mostly will get health care that they need, uh, regardless of their income levels. And they have law, law enforcement, fire officers protecting their homes and trying, at least in theory, trying to prevent crime from happening. 
So all in all, I think the transition, if you if you took the longer view, you know, were there bumps along the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but in, in, in retrospect, I, I would say that America has done a tremendous job at trying to turn things around. If you expect everything to happen in one generation, you're, you're a fool. Nothing happens in one generation. You know, the Jews were enslaved for 800 years by the Babylonians. Do you think that, that uh, you know, in year one, they just washed their hands and everything was hunky-dory? No. We'll be back in just a moment. I want to tell you this interesting story about a news report that came out in Milwaukee not long ago. Uh, we'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to Speaking Out America. I'm JR. We'll be right back. All right. How many of you know this? You know this song? You've heard it before? What does that bring back? Oh, man, it brings back a lot of memories, right? First of all, it's a theme from Sanford and Son, which was, a, I think it was tied for number one, number one sitcom in the United States in the mid-70s. I think it was tied with All in the Family with Archie Bunker. But it's amazing is that Red Fox was the highest paid, he was the highest paid actor in Hollywood at the time, in 1970, right? Because he had the number one show. And it was one of my favorite shows. Number one, because I grew up in Watts and Compton. So I could kind of relate. And number two, it was funny. It was a great show. It was well-timed, well-written. And in fact, this music is written by Quincy Jones, who would go on to produce his own archives and as well as produce all of Michael Jackson's. Why do I bring all this up, you say? Because I grew up thinking that African Americans were also entitled to the good life. I never once thought to myself, oh my gosh, these these poor people. But it's getting worse. It seems like the more we progress, the more angry people get at the plight of African Americans. And and there's a good article in in today's Zero Hedge that I came upon. And today, of course, we're, we're celebrating Juneteenth, right? This is supposed to be the day that we're celebrating Juneteenth. Now, before I get to the article, I want to make a point. The reason that I think that the, 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 the temperature in the room, so to speak, is higher is because of propaganda. Like, no duh, right? Right, Jim? No duh. But here's a good example. Like, I'm watching television, I think it was Friday or Thursday, ABC News comes rolling on and they go to Pierre Thomas, Pierre Thomas, an African-American reporter. His beat is usually the Washington. But for some reason, they they needed to ship him out to the Midwest to cover a story about a new report that had come out about the Milwaukee police. And according to the story, it read that a significantly higher proportion of traffic stops were made of African-American or people of foreign descent. Now, Milwaukee is a very heavily crowded, as is Minneapolis, with uh, Muslims. And one of the reasons for this is because when we had uh, brought a lot of people or allowed Somalis and other people from other nations as well to come over to the United States as refugees, uh, they gravitated toward certain areas where they had relatives and Hence, you've got a lot of Muslim populations 
in Michigan, Cadillac. What's that other? I can't remember. But anyway, there are also a lot of uh, former African, modern Africans that are exiled and they live in in asylum in the United States. And so anyway, the point is, is that Pierre Thomas and ABC News thought that this news story about a higher percentage of African-Americans getting ticketed meant that the police department in Milwaukee was racist. Well, it turns out that the reason that they get more ticketed is not because police are going out and looking for them. It's because there are more crimes committed per capita in those areas where there's a heavier, dense African-American. And I would probably venture to say probably poverty because usually it's poverty that uh, is the source of crime. Not so much, obviously. That's my experience. It's usually poverty. Poverty is is non-discriminatory. So anyway, the article that the ABC news producers were trying to produce was that Milwaukeeans are inherently racist, or at least their police department is. And so this is going to require a top-down review just to make sure. But they're discounting the other thing, which is why is it that people in Milwaukee of color commit a higher frequency of crimes? And And it's the same with our judicial system. They never ask why it is a higher percentage, a proportionally higher percentage of African-Americans commit more crimes than other races, Asian, white, and others. They, they, they assume, or at least the progressives assume, that the reason that there's more African-Americans in jail is because the system is corrupt. And they're allowed to get away with that lie over and over to the point where they have this thing called social justice reform. Have you heard about it? And I know a little bit about it because I know a couple of philanthropists who have put a lot of money into helping reform the judicial judicial system. And the way they do that is by endorsing certain candidates that they know will be soft on crime. And this is what's happening with the Open Door Foundation where they bring in these DAs that get elected in their communities because Soros, George, and now his son, Alex, they contribute a lot of money to these campaigns because most people that vote usually vote by familiarity of the name, not so much the positions of the candidate. So right now we're at a position where today we're celebrating Juneteenth because we're honoring that it was the day, a good day or a good year, if uh, that there was emancipation and there was slavery ended in the United States. But I want to read to you a little bit about this. If all this celebration, this is from zero hedge written by, I believe it's Tyler Durden. No, I'm sorry. It's Tomas Lifson of the American thinker.com. He says, if all this celebration were a bomb to the anger and tensions, it would be wonderful, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The brilliant writer Shelby Steele had a lot to say about the current push for reparations and much more in the Wall Street Journal on Friday, and I'll share that with you. The Great Society was a gigantic virtue signal. It was moral advertising when the Times called for the hard work of adapting a long-oppressed people to the demands of the, the modern world. But an even greater barrier to black development turned out to be freedom itself. In the mid-60s, when the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King were staples on the evening news, 
we black Americans stepped into a vast greater freedom than anything we had ever known. King's rhetoric, great God Almighty, we are free at last, portrayed freedom as heaven. But freedom also had to have been scary. Oppression had been con- had conditioned us to suppress our humanity, to set ourselves into a permanent subjugation. Not the best preparation for a full life and freedom. He goes on to say, I believe it was this collision with freedom, its intimidating burden of responsibility, its terror of the unknown, its risk of humiliation that pressured black Americans, especially the young, into a terrible mistake. In segregation, we had longed for a freedom grounded in democratic principles. In the 60s, we won that point. But then suddenly, with the ink still wet on the Civil Rights Act, a new voice protested exploded onto the scene. A voice of race and color and antagonistic longing black power. To accommodate, we shifted the overriding focus of racial protest in America from rights and laws to identity. Today, racial preferences are used everywhere in American life. Identity is celebrated almost as profusely as freedom once was. It all follows a simple formula. Add a history of victimization to the identity of any group and you will have created entitlement. Today's black identity is a victim-focused identity designed to entitle blacks in American life. By the terms of this identity, we blacks might be called citizen victims or citizens with privileges. The obvious problem with this is that it baits us into a life of chasing down privileges like affirmative action. In broader America, this only makes us sufferers for want of privileges. Reparations can never be more than a dream of privilege. Well stated. Well stated indeed. Wall Street Journal, the Great Society uh, column written by Shelby Steele. Shelby Steele wrote that. And it's, it's worth considering on this day when we consider, indeed, how far we have come in this world, I think. And in the meantime, you know, again, uh, America is about the dreams, but it's also about failure. And freedom entails both. So you have to be aware of that. Freedom has a price. Sometimes it is just being at the right place, the right time, and being ready when opportunity presents itself. You're listening to Speaking Out America. JR will be right back. I don't know if you've heard about this, but you've heard my position on George Soros. Welcome back to Speaking Out America. I'm JR. Don't forget to follow us online. Our podcast is everywhere. Speaking Out America. It's easy to find. And then, of course, we have our slot here, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific. Monday through Friday on crntalk.com. We appreciate all those guys behind the scenes over there. Jeremy and Mike and Mike and Jennifer and Suede, everybody over there. Thank you for helping and thanks for allowing me to be a part of your great family. Um, So George Soros is is long been known as an instigator uh, in the Western world. People, uh, for example, Orban over in Hungary detests his meddling. George Soros meddles. He's... $25 $25 billion, most of the money he's made in stocks and learning how to play the market, but a big chunk of his money 
was what he made when he was a youth, turning in his Jewish friends uh, and aligning with the Nazis. And people don't believe that's true, but he's admitted it. He admitted he was saved by a man who was not crucified in Hungary when the Nazis took over because the Nazis believed some other, uh, this Christian Hungarian fellow took George, little George, age 15, under his wing and said, no, he's not Jewish. And so he was spared from being sent off to the gas chambers. But uh, what did George Soros do during the time when all of his friends were being chucked off to the trains and off to wherever? He was making money, selling their stuff. He went on record, 1960s, with uh, Mike Wallace. I know you find this hard to believe, but it's true. It's just that the liberal media tries to hide it. Some of this stuff gets pulled from YouTube. It's harder to harder to find. George Soros is an evil man. I hope he dies. I hope he has a heart attack and dies tomorrow. And the reason I say that is because he's responsible for the deaths and destruction of so many people. And now his son Alex is taking over. And Alex says, oh, I'm, I'm even worse. I'm all about politics. I mean, let me tell you how it works. You get an endowment from the Open Door Society for whatever progressive cause. Let's say, let's say you're into, you know, social justice. And you get some money from, you know, one day in your mailbox, you get a nice check for 25 grand and it comes from the Open Door Foundation, it's a tax deductible for them because you're a nonprofit. And they send it with no questions asked. Or let's say you're a, you're a Yale uh, medical department and you get a large endowment from the Open Door Society or some subdivision thereof. And you think, oh, that's great. Or say Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation decide that they want to throw a couple of million dollars your way. You don't think that comes with strings attached? It does. Because then the next time that endowment comes, it comes with a suggestion. You know, we think you should be focused more on promoting transgender surgery for youth. Or we think that your political campaign isn't doing enough for the gay youth of Los Angeles. And we want you to try to do something about that. And after a while, you start, it's like being a, a, you know, somebody who gives you a free line of heroin. And then you get hooked. And now you need the heroin. Now you need that endowment. Now you need that money. And they know it. And that's exactly how they corrupt people into doing what they want to do. Now, what's their motive? I'm not sure. I think they think they're doing something good. Maybe they're trying to alleviate guilt. But what they're really doing is they're, they're creating dissension, destroying families, allowing crime. Now think of all the fentanyl that has come across the border. Look at San Francisco today. Read a great article over the weekend just about how bad it was in San Francisco. AT&T is out. All those stores, all those areas, the Tenderloin, uh, the Hill District, all these places where, you know, tourists, I mean, they get 21 million people that go there every year. But if you go look at the Golden Gate Bridge, you're warned, don't leave your your belongings in your car. You know, there's a little parking lot where you can go and park and you can go get a nice look at the Golden Gate. Uh, and if you don't run into a few homeless people that are over there panhandling, 
and and uh, and much of this is directly tied. The breakdowns of the American Democratic-run cities are run by people like Gascon and Braggs. They are not going after the criminals because they're going soft on criminality because George Soros wants them to. George Soros is the one that's pushing migrancy from uh, African, Northern African, and Middle Eastern, Mesopotamian, whatever you want to call them, refugees, and forcing EU nations to take these people in. Forcing them. Taxing them. Do you know that in a, I think it's, it's, it's the EU, if you don't take in a migrant, if you don't allow migrants to come into your town unfettered, you could find 20,000 pounds, euros, for every migrant you refuse to take in. And you know where this comes from? All of this, the rapes, the violence, all, everything that's happening in Europe right now, uh, it's just like in America. It's happening because there are big people behind it that are pushing it, that are supporting it, and they do it in the name of allevi- either alleviating their own guilt or they hate Americans or they hate white people. Whatever it is that drives them, it is not purity and altruism. They want to destroy the, the fundamental fabric of American life, which is the family. Why they want to do it, I have no idea. Ask them. But we know who the enemy is, and the enemy in this case is Alex Soros, because he is taking over his dad's $25 billion enterprise. And if you look at him, he looks like a woke, metrosexual guy. And I want you, I want you to think real hard about this. I think about what, what happens to a person when when they grow up watching their dad own the world. How do you think that, what kind of sensibilities do you think this guy's going to grow up with? Alex, watching his father. Never hear about the mother. The father gets everybody to do what the father wants. That's an incredible uh, amount of power. And, you know, money corrupts. And so Alex says, I'm going to take that $25 billion and I'm going to do even more work. I'm going to try to buy a few more. I'm going to change this world. I'm going to push every pet project that I love. And I don't care. Nobody can stop me. Nobody can stop him. He's got all the money. It's like the end of the Monopoly game where you got one guy sitting at the end and he's got all the money. And he can tell everybody else what to do just by endowing them with this, giving them this. Promising support here. Bill Gates, by the way, does the same exact thing uh, all around the world. Sometimes he does great things. Sometimes he doesn't do great things. Right now he's over hanging out with Xi Jinping trying to figure out how to implement the social credit score for the good of the country. You know, Ireland is uh, clamping down on, on free speech. You can be charged with hate speech if you go on social media and say one thing that questions the narrative about Trans youth. Where do they get their money? It traces all the way back to Open Door. And uh, I'm not sure why they do it. That'd be an interesting question. But I think it has to do with power. I think it, it has to do with having people beholden to you. And, and having people need you. Which is, if, if, if those are the things that motivate Alex Soros, we're all in trouble. And, and he's not the only one, by the way. There are are a lot of overly progressive, very wealthy people like Jeff Bezos who think they know what's best for humanity. 
and uh, and that's where we are. That's where we are today. It is. It's sad that we're that, that at that point, because you know, if you go back in history, you think, God, what if had what if that person hadn't have been in charge? What what could we have done? How could we have you know? What if Hitler hadn't have gotten in charge? What if Mussolini hadn't gotten in charge? You know, how might man be better today if we didn't have these, you know, these jerks, you know, trying to, uh, you know, make society into their own image. So that's, unfortunately, the majority rules right now because there are more of those kinds of people, unelected bureaucrats, 'er ne'er-do-wells, who think that they have a better idea on how they can control society. And, And it's not unlike... You know, like in our town, we have these people, these, you know, their hearts are pure. And they go out and they take pictures of little turtles that crawl up on the surf every night and they bring out their red lights. And then they create all these uh, policies where the lights on the beach have to be a certain frequency because we don't want to scare the turtles. And they go and they tag all the turtles every night. And if you walk around the beaches in South Florida, you'll see these little sticks sticking in the ground where the turtles lay their eggs. And there's a bunch of numbers written on the sticks that say how many eggs there are and how many. And this is the thing about humanity. You know, we like to count things. We like to control things. We like to feel like we're in charge of everything. And, And we do it because we think that we can manage our way and we can control the world just the way we want it, like a giant nest where we can just turn the temperature down when we want, turn it up when we want, because we can do everything. And it doesn't matter if there's a, you know, millions of people die because we want to get rid of fossil fuels because we think that we can control the Earth's temperature. But it starts with the sea turtle, doesn't it? It starts with the little sea turtle, that little thing that we think that we can control just by by tagging and numbering and that's part of that the hubris so alex soros keep an eye on him he's going to be bringing more damage to the western shores you watch it's going to get worse the laws are going to get worse gavin newsom's probably going to win the presidency and we'll all be royally screwed see you next time